Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 85. After Hours with Dr. Ray Baker. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and we discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season thus far, we've snooped on Screwtape's correspondence, and we've eavesdropped on his toast to the Tempter's College. We then began Narnia Month, and we started by reading and discussing The Silver Chair, and then after that, we spoke to various authors about their love of Narnia, as well as how Lewis's fiction can function as a form of pre-evangelism. But today, we're wrapping up Narnia Month by going beyond Narnia, by examining the theology and apologetics of C.S. Lewis with Dr. Ray Baker. Dr. Baker is an American-Swedish theologian born in Stockholm, Sweden. He has earned degrees from Liberty University, the University of Iceland, Abo Academy, University in Finland. And we've had Douglas Gresham, Lewis's stepson, on the show, but we've never before had anyone who's biologically related to Lewis. That is until now, because Dr. Baker is C.S. Lewis's eighth cousin six times removed, which, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, is very impressive. Dr. Ray is a self-confessed language nerd and has read the entire New Testament in 13 different languages. And he's published at least six books in Swedish and one in English. And he's the author of the book, which we'll be discussing today, Beyond Narnia, looking at the theology and apologetics of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Baker, welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. I just wanted to clarify that I wasn't born in Sweden. I was born in the United States, but I've lived here for close to 30 years. Wonderful. I have actually never been. <laughs> it's I'm like most English people. I just don't go to Europe. <laughs> the first time I started visiting Europe really regularly was when I knew I was moving to the United States. And I knew that all of these wonderful countries that were have been on my doorstep for over 20 years of my life, I had visited very rarely. <laughs> so you're Lewis's eighth cousin, six times removed. How on earth did you discover that? Yeah, well, uh, I'm not a Mormon, but uh, as you, uh, the listeners may know, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're quite interested in genealogy. And they have a free app and a free website where you can type in your family history as far back as you can trace it. And then you can click on a button to find out if you're related to other famous people in history. And uh, as it turns out, uh, yeah, we are related. And my uh, great-grandmother's maiden name was Lewis. So, so there we go. That's so impressive. I love it. All right, I'm going to have to do that now. I need to find out which famous people I am very distantly related to. Well, I have Boadicea and William the Conqueror in there as well. And Dang. Charlemagne. So, wow. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah. All, all so the big hitters. Is, yes. <laughs> Only the best. <laughs> I said in your introduction that you've read the New Testament in 13 different languages. So which of the which languages can you speak? Well, the ones I speak more or less fluently would be uh, English, Icelandic, Swedish, and French. And I can get by pretty well in Spanish and tourist levels of German, Italian, and a number of others. So, yeah. Anything really obscure? I mean, Icelandic is... Icelandic is pretty obscure. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, we're talking... But there I'm in good company with uh, both Tolkien and Lewis who could read Icelandic, so... Have you ever thought about founding your own Coal Biters Association? No, but I have tossed around the idea of uh, the Brothers of St. Francis of Labrie. What would that involve? Just guys who are interested in apologetics in the, along the lines of Francis Schaeffer. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was an idea I had back when I myself was single, yeah, and some other single friends and I were interested in uh, apologetics and interested in Francis Schaeffer, and we kind of 
spawned the idea, but then we all ended up getting married. So that idea kind of went out the window. <laughs> yeah, it does tend to be a bit of a drain on the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really appreciate you giving us your time today and for reaching out to me and sending me a copy of your book. Uh, so let's do the standard episode segments so we can get down to talking about it. Now, the quote of the week, normally I pull something from Lewis or one of the Inklings, but today the quote of the week is actually from the opening paragraph of your book. You write, I promise I'm not a fanatic. You know the type. The guys who nerd out on a subject with a depth that both frightens and fascinates at the same time. They somehow manage to steer every conversation to the love of their life with a speed and skill that takes one's breath away. I've met Lewis nerds like that. I hope I'm not one of them. So, first of all, I feel personally attacked by that statement. Secondly, have you been talking to my wife? And thirdly, after reading your book, I think you might be in denial. Yeah, well, uh, okay. I, I haven't been talking to your wife, but my son would <laughs> definitely say that I'm in denial about not being a Lewis nerd. After all, I have one of the original Time magazines from 1947 with C.S. Lewis on the cover framed on the office of my uh, on the wall of my office here behind me. It looks beautiful. I, I, my eyes clocked in on that immediately, and I was immediately <laughs> impressed. I'm going to be setting up my own office. We're about to move house to Wisconsin, uh, mm. and I'm, I'm planning to do similar things. Let's just say that. <laughs> now, it's a little early here on the West Coast of the United States, so I'm drinking some Earl Grey tea. Uh, Dr. Baker, are you drinking anything? I am indeed. It is almost 7 p.m. here and here in Stockholm, and I am enjoying a nice cold Summersby pear cider from England. It's very refreshing on a hot summer day. Oh, I very much approve. When I lived in England, I lived in Gloucestershire, and they have many local ciders. That was the main thing. When you when you go to a pub, you just ask what the local cider is for That's that right. village. Oh, so good. Well, cheers. Skål. Skål. I will admit I only know that because I watched the TV series on HBO called The Vikings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I gave a brief summary of your background in the introduction, but would you mind filling it out a little bit more? Sure. Uh, how did you become a theologian and what's been your area of study? Well, I'm uh, very interested in apologetics and I work with Apologia, the Center for Christian Apologetics here in Sweden. And uh, we're involved in publishing and online courses and as a resource for churches here in the Nordic countries. And we believe that apologetics should be such a natural part of church life, every bit as much as Sunday school or youth group or the praise team. And so, uh, yeah, that's part of my interest in C.S. Lewis is the apologetics, but I'm also interested in languages and culture and literature, as you mentioned, which were also uh, areas of huge interest for Lewis. And when did Lewis make an appearance in your life and your studies? Well, I, I had never even heard of him, I don't think, until I started uh, at university. And that's when I first encountered him. And I, I was very interested in him just because he is such a, a masterful communicator and really succeeded in taking very difficult ideas and making them accessible to a broader public. So let's talk about your book, Beyond Narnia, Looking at the Theology and Apologetics of C.S. Lewis. Now, you dedicated the book to your brother-in-law, Gary, whom you said kept nagging you to write books in English. And aside from his nagging, what was it that made you want to write this particular book? Well, I discovered that many Christians have never really read anything by C.S. Lewis other than the Narnia books, or possibly mere Christianity. And I think that's a great shame, because there are so many other incredible gems that I just love in his work. And that's why I chose to call the book Beyond Narnia. I want people to go beyond Narnia to discover all the other books that he's written. So the, the book is really an introduction to 
the key themes uh, in C.S. Lewis so that readers, whether they're avid Lewis readers already or whether they're just beginning to discover him, can see the big picture and to see everything that Lewis is trying to do in both the, the fictional works and in his nonfiction books. I would say that's a real strength of your book. So I grew up on Narnia and I reread them in my mid-20s and it was then somebody mentioned that, oh, Lewis also wrote other things. Your book would have been a really good book to read around that time because it would have given me the lay of the land. I'd get to see the entire landscape of everything that Lewis wrote. Uh, whereas I sort of just kept stumbling around and was like, oh, there's another book. Oh, I found another one. Yeah. And in particular, your appendices would have been really useful to have had at that time because you basically outline everything that Lewis has written, both his monographs, his essays, the, the different collection books. Because the first time I started digging into his essays, I got utterly confused because you have multiple essays with different names, different books. Yeah, it's the, the essays are very confusing because he wrote over 200 essays, articles, sermons that have been gathered and regathered in a number of different anthologies through the years, 40 different anthologies. And some of them are published under different names in different collections and uh, different names in the UK compared to the US. So it's very confusing. So I, with that uh, appendix, I've really tried to bring some structure and listed every short text by Lewis and exactly which anthologies it's available in. I keep pitching to my co-hosts that one season we're just going to work through his essays. And when we do do it, I'm going to be following through your appendix because <laughs> that's, my, that's my North Star, my guide through it all. Great. I really love the cover art of your book. Over the past few months, I've been reading several Lewis-related books uh, for various interviews that I have recorded and still to record. And my wife has always referred to yours as the one with the fun illustrations on the front. And the cover is... Indeed, just delightful. Who was it that designed it? Well, um, I was at, uh, just as I was finishing up the manuscript for the book, I was at a dinner party in Helsinki. And there I met the incredibly talented Phil Mendez, who is an American who lives in Finland with his Finnish wife. And he had started off his career as an animator at Disney and then had gone on to be the creator of two uh, series of Saturday morning cartoons for NBC during the 1980s. And when I saw the, his style of art, I thought, that is exactly what I want for my book. Because so many books about C.S. Lewis, especially ones that are fairly academic, like my book, have a tendency just to have a boring old black and white photo of <laughs> Lewis on the cover. And I thought, man, the creator of Narnia deserves something much more creative. And you know, Phil Mendez has really delivered on this one. I just love the cover. And I have the original of it here on my other wall behind me. <laughs> And he even did a caricature of you on the back. The caricature of me is Ransom on the back cover. Yes, <laughs> leaning against the Narnian lamppost. I love it. Yeah, no, it was delightful. And I particularly like the way he was also a little liberal with his interpretations because Reaper Cheap appears with what I would call a musketeer hat. Although I suppose yeah, for sure. him, it's probably a mouseketeer hat. Uh, but it, it really sums up the spirit of Reaper Cheap of, uh, you know, swishing his sword around and seeking honor and an adventure. Well, let's actually dig into your book now. Uh, you begin by giving an introduction to Lewis's life. And although I've read many introductions to Lewis, I really enjoyed yours. What is it in particular that you think readers need to know about Lewis's life in order to help them understand the topics that you bring up later in the book? Well, I think that uh, we as a Christian church need an embodied apologetic, not just rational arguments. And another one of my great heroes, John Stott, once said that God doesn't want a bunch of spiritual tadpoles that are all head and not so very much of anything else. <laughs> and I think that Lewis really uh, provides an important role model to many singles in the church today, as since he was single for most of his adult life. 
but we do see two important things about his singleness. First, that he surrounded himself with a very close circle of friends. And I think that this type of community is vital for anyone who, for whatever reason, finds themselves unmarried. Uh, so the singleness doesn't mean that, uh, that one has to go through life alone. And secondly, I think that many people uh, misunderstand the gift of celibacy in the New Testament. And they, they often think that celibacy is some kind of supernatural absence of all romantic or sexual desire. <laughs> but in reality, I think that uh, the gift of celibacy is the ability to give of oneself in love and in service to others, and to, that is to other individuals and to the church and to the Lord. And I think that Lewis really uh, embodies both of those things in a very clear way. And I love the fact that you mentioned Uncle John. Uh, John Stott was probably one of the first apologists that I ever read uh, when I when I really came to my faith. Yeah, he was an amazing, amazing man. Mm. Now, in the next section, you talk about Lewis's apologetic method. In broad strokes, what was it? Well, Lewis rarely presented any kind of deductive argument for Christian faith, and his approach was uh, generally abductive in nature. And that's a, a method that has striking similarities to that of uh, Thomas Aquinas and the other scholastic theologians. And maybe that term abductive theo- or ab- abductive reasoning is not familiar to some people, but you probably your listeners are probably familiar with the minimal facts argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And that would be a very clear example of abductive reasoning. That's when uh, one begins with an observation of some phenomenon and then you pose a number of hypotheses that might explain that phenomenon. And then each of these hypotheses are examined to see how well they work as an explanation. And then after every other hypothesis has been presented and dismissed, Lewis presents what he believes to be the best explanation. And then he goes on and presents this argument in some creative manner, often in one of his fictional works. And that's exactly what he does again and again as it relates to many different uh, topics that I address in the book. Mm. I really like abductive arguments. It it comes across as a little bit more humble rather than an ironclad proof. If you don't accept this, you're an idiot sort of uh, yeah, idea exactly. that you can project. It And it is just much more conversational naturally because you're basically saying, hey, we see this thing in life. How do we explain it? And then you look at a couple of different models. Yeah, it does begin where people are as well. I mean, it doesn't start with, you know, this abstract analytic philosophy or something that most people can't, you know, with uh, 130 premises and everything <laughs> that, like Alvin Plantinga, <laughs> that most people simply just, their, their eyes just glaze over, you know, they just can't identify with that. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think personally, some of the strongest arguments for theism are the ones offered by St. Thomas Aquinas. But the thing is, they also require a bit of a ramp up. You've got to have a good grasp of some of the philosophical ideas and underpinnings right. that are behind it before you can actually even get to what the argument actually is. Yeah, that's right. In the section that follows, you focus on two arguments that we've looked at in this show when we went through mere Christianity, Lewis's trilemma and the moral argument. How do you unpack them in your book? Well, the, the trilemma or the Lord, liar, lunatic argument basically starts out with the observation that there really was something very unique about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, He made claims about himself, and he did things that no ordinary person would do. And so the question is, how do we explain that? Well, maybe Jesus was lying when he said that uh, anyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or maybe he was delusional when he forgave people's sins or when he said that he would rise from the dead. Or maybe all the supernatural stuff that the New Testament records about Jesus was just legendary accretions that came about decades after his death. 
Well, Lewis examines each of these options and then dismisses them in favor of the explanation that Jesus was exactly what and who he claimed to be, the eternal God Almighty. And then we see that he goes on and he presents this argument creatively, among other places, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the professor helps the children make sense out of Lucy's incredible claim that she has visited this magical land of Narnia by passing through the back wall of the wardrobe. Now, when it comes to the moral argument, Lewis uh, begins with the observation that we all act with the expectation that other people should behave according to some commonly held standard of behavior, that we should keep our promises, that we should show gratitude for the good things that people do to us, that, uh, that we don't do bad things to people who are good to us, and, and all the rest. The question remains then, what is the foundation for this inherent sense of right and wrong behavior? And so he examines various hypotheses and says that it can't simply be a byproduct of biological evolution or a law of nature or some sort of utilitarian social contract, but that there must be some absolute moral law giver who is concerned about the way that we behave and who, uh, who places that responsibility upon us as, as human beings. I recently had a listener reach out to me about the moral argument. And most objections that I hear about it, they tend to try and offer something instinctual and something societal coming together. Because Lewis, in his argument, he says, okay, it can't be one of the instincts since it's judging between the instincts. Uh, But the listener was saying, well, can't it be a social instinct that's a mixture of genetics and societal pressure that tells us to choose the thing which is best for the flourishing of society? How might you respond to that? Well, I, 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 in, in conversation with people, I generally will, will take some really extreme example because people are very hesitant to admit that there's anything as some sort of absolute right or wrong, that it's right or wrong in every culture at, at all times in history. They would say, well, you know, that's just what we think now, the, that it's wrong to discriminate against people because of their gender or skin color or whatever. But So I, I would take another example and say, well, what about sexually abusing a child? Has it ever in any culture at any time in history been a good thing for adults to sexually abuse children? And they may say, well, yeah, I mean, it's always occurred. I said, I'm not talking about whether it's ever occurred or not. I'm talking about whether people in that culture have considered it a good thing to happen. And and if you don't think that it was ever a time in history or another culture when it was a good thing for adults to sexually abuse children, then why not? On what grounds? And, you know, I, because I, I pick a subject that for many uh, people that I talk to is a very personal subject, people who themselves have perhaps have been abused sexually as children, uh, you know, it really cuts to the core of the matter and uh, provides a, a good grounds for continuing to discuss uh, these things. Mm-hmm. Next up, you tackle what you call the problem of longing. And readers of Lewis will know this as joy or zenzucht. So what is it, first of all, and why do you call it a problem? Well, this idea of, of longing or joy or desire or Sehnsucht, he sometimes used this German term for, the, for this concept, it's, a, it's an, a, a, a sensation that we as humans have, and it can express itself in two different ways. There's one, there's kind of a, a chronic sense that there's got to be something more to life than just this. And I think this is uh, captured very clearly in the old U2 song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. <laughs> uh, but then this idea of joy, zainsukt, longing, desire can also strike us in a very acute fashion where we're just going about our business and somehow we're suddenly overwhelmed by some incredible sense of beauty, 
joy, longing that just kind of wells up within us. And it's both painful and joyful and beautiful and ecstatic all at the same time. But as quickly as it comes, it's gone. And Lewis is describing these sensations and pointing to them as sign points, uh, signposts pointing the way to God. I think that, you know, uh, Non-Christians often point to the problem of why I call it the problem of uh, of longing in the book uh, is because non-believers often point to the problem of pain as a reason for not believing in God. But I believe that that pain and suffering are really more of a problem for non-believers uh, because if we simply are the result of blind, random processes of evolution, then humanity has no greater value than that of the trees in the forest. Mm. So if I or my loved ones only exist as a, as an accident, then why should I think there's anything wrong if one of my accidents, if one of my loved ones would then be the arbitrary victim of uh, a freak accident or the victim of a, a murderer or a terrorist or some awful disease? So on what grounds does an atheist have to expect that the world shouldn't just be that way? You know, life's a bitch and then you die. <laughs> End of story. But, you know, kind of getting back to Lewis, I think that our experiences of joy, longing, Zehnsucht is a problem for non-believers. They may be able to explain the evolutionary benefit of physical pleasure that we enjoy eating, we enjoy sex, and these things, and they, but they contribute to the survival of our species. And that's why we enjoy them. That's why we, in evolution, have developed these, this ability to enjoy these things. But of course, that presupposes that there's some kind of moral value in the survival of our species survival of our species in general. But the inherent desire that we have for something that nothing tangible in this world can satisfy does not give us any sort of evolutionary advantage. And that's why I call Lewis's concept of joy, longing, desire, Zehnsucht, a problem. And here we come back to Lewis's apologetic method, the abductive argument, to look at this phenomena and say, why? Why, exactly. (laughs) In the next section, you deal with scripture, and Lewis sometimes draws the ire of some Christians about his view or supposed view on scripture. How would you describe his position? Yeah, it's it's a tough one, uh, because he never wrote out any sort of systematic bibliology. Um, The material that I've gathered and systematized in the book comes from a number of personal letters that he wrote and, and from other things that he wrote in some of his works of literary criticism. And I think that the fact that he never did write out a systematic view of the Bible may be an indicator that he wasn't completely finished thinking about the subject and and maybe was not ready to put these ideas into print. But nonetheless, I think that it's important for us to remind ourselves that discussions about biblical infallibility and inerrancy were not at all common or current during Lewis' lifetime. They came about really much later in the 1970s and 1980s, and then mostly in North America. But in summary, I think we could say that he rejected what we call biblical, what we would call inerrancy, but that was mostly because of putative contradictions in the Bible and because he was opposed to a very strict, wooden, literal interpretation of metaphorical and symbolic language in the Bible. Now, of course, the definition of inerrancy that was later developed by the Chicago Council on Biblical Inerrancy actually takes literary genre into consideration there. So in that sense, his view isn't that far a base from uh, from the Chicago Council's definition of inerrancy. Although uh, there are some things, nonetheless, that, that he said about the Bible that uh, still would uh, provoke a number of evangelicals. He did not believe that the whole Bible is the word of God. 
but he believed that all of the Bible is conducive for God to speak to us, although some parts are arguably more conducive than others, like these various lists of names in the Old Testament. It's <laughs> sometimes hard for us to uh, hear God speaking to us through that, and I, I, I'm certain that many people uh, read those sections of the Bible with the fan blowing <laughs> you know, uh, during their read through the Bible in a year plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did say that in there uh, that inspiration is when God takes a human text and elevates it in order to communicate uh, God's word through through the human text. And the Bible is the word of God in the sense that God can use it to communicate His word to people. Now he also made a distinction between, say, inspiration or the Bible as the word of God with questions of biblical historicity. And he believes that not all parts of the Bible are historical but that even the non-historical parts, that God could still use them to communicate eternal truth, much in the same way that, God, that, that Jesus told the parables, which we generally don't interpret as literal historical events of, you know, a father had two sons and one son did this and the other son did that. You know, we don't suppose that these were actual real people that were living at that time. But this story, even though it is not a historical story, still communicates to us an eternal truth. And Lewis said that this would also be true of many events, in particular in the Old Testament, that he did not consider historical, but that nonetheless communicated an eternal truth. And this would include stories like Jonah and the great fish and and um, the, the flood and many other, the story of Job and many others. Yeah, I'm planning on doing an episode probably next season where we're going to do a deep dive into Lewis's view of scripture because it is really interesting because there's there's quite a few things in there that i have sympathy for and as you point out there's a few things in there that i'm going "Mm, i don't know if i can quite follow you all the way on this one yeah i think that you know just as i write in the book that um he makes this uh what i think might be an arbitrary distinction between when historicity is is important in the biblical narrative and when it's not and he says that the historicity for example of the the incarnation of jesus and and jesus death and resurrection are necessary to Christian faith, but not, you know, all of these events in the Old Testament. And and so just why are some things, the history historicity of some things important or, or crucial, but not others? And I think that he's rather uh, arbitrary in where he draws the line there. Hmm. Michael Christensen, he wrote a book on uh, C.S. Lewis on scripture. It's a very good book. Yes, I've read that one. He's going to be coming out with a new version. Uh, He says that there there are some new material that's come to light. Yeah, that other one is very old now. It's from the 80s, I think. So Mm -hmm. I'm definitely looking forward to digging into that one a little bit more. Uh, But let's get back to your book. Uh, The next chapter, you focus on the argument from reason and Elizabeth Anscombe's critique of Lewis in their famous or very often infamous debate. And we had an episode earlier this season where I chatted with Trent Horn about this. But for those who haven't listened to that episode yet, would you mind explaining what the argument from reason is and how you explain it in this chapter? Yeah. Well, the the main thrust of the book, Miracles, is that before we can answer the question of whether this or that strange event was a miracle, we must first answer the more foundational question of whether the normal operations of the laws of nature can temporarily be suspended by someone or something outside of the laws of nature. And so Lewis points to morality and rationality as two indicators that a supernatural understanding of the universe is better than a naturalistic one. And so it's in that context that I lift up the, um, the argument from reason in a chapter that deals with miracles. Now, we've already talked briefly about the, uh, the moral argument for God's existence, but the argument from reason 
basically is the idea that if our brains are simply the unintended result of arbitrary evolutionary processes, then there really is no reason to think that the random movement of the atoms in my brain that give rise to thought should be evaluated any differently than the random movement of the atoms that constitute a puddle of spilled milk. Philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, she critiqued Lewis in a public debate at the Oxford Socratic Club. Basically, her critique could be boiled down to Lewis's careless use of terms in the first edition of Miracles. There, he had described this the origin of reason from an out from based on this naturalistic paradigm as irrational when he should have used the word non-rational. Mm-hmm. Um, based on her criticism, he later corrected that and a few other details in the second edition of Miracles when it came out. And she was basically critiquing him because he was saying that to trust it is irrational. It's not so much that it's it's definitely not rational. It's more of just there's no rationality in there in that process. Exactly. And that's why she she felt that non-rational was a better word than irrational. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. I've got to say, I think the argument from reason is probably one of my favorite arguments. And it is certainly a tighter argument than, say, a lot of the other abductive arguments. It's one that you've really got to wrestle with in order to try and break break out of it. Right. In my, in my discussions with non-believers, um, I, I generally start with the moral argument but uh, if someone is more philosophically inclined, perhaps has studied a bit of philosophy, then I always go to the argument from reason. But I think that for many people who are not used to thinking in a philosophically rigorous manner, you know, their eyes just glaze over at the <laughs> argument from reason. They just don't get the point of it. So, <laughs> yeah, sure. But but it definitely, I, I think it's a quite compelling argument, and it definitely has its place in evangelism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually think it's. It's also he doesn't really sum it up in a very pithy fashion. Uh, no. He he quotes another author. I forget the name now, but he quotes another author, and he gives the best succinct version of that. Yeah, it was uh, J.B.S. Haldane. That's him. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Well, next up, you tackle the problem of pain. We spoke a little bit about pain and suffering a little earlier in the episode, uh, and anyone who's watched uh, a version of the Shadowlands movie or seen the play, they'll know about the line of. Uh, that Lewis says in there about pain being God's megaphone. Uh, but since we haven't actually got to that book yet in our, our tour through Lewis as we as we go through each season, uh, would you mind just summing up a little bit as to what Lewis is saying in that book? Yeah. Well, he starts off with a fairly typical formulation of the problem of, e- of evil. The first premise is that if God were all-powerful, he would be able to do anything he wants. Second premise is that if God were completely good, he would want his creatures to be perfectly happy. The third premise is the creatures are not happy. And the fourth premise or the conclusion is that God is lacking in either goodness or power or both. Now, Lewis then calls into question each of these three, each of these premises. And regarding the first premise, uh, that uh, if God were all power, if God were all powerful, he would be able to do whatever he wants. He said this, yeah, sure, this is true per se, but one must be careful not to assume that God can do the logically impossible such as create a world full of free creatures who never do evil. When it comes to the second premise, the idea that uh, God would want his creatures to be perfectly happy, he says that happy is really a very arbitrary idea and that we have to be very careful not to conflate the idea of happiness with goodness or with kindness. And we see that God wants people to be holy and perfect. Uh, And if we are holy and perfect, that will in turn lead to our happiness, but happiness is not tied to us just getting what we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
when it comes to the third premise that uh, the creatures are not happy, he also says that this premise is true, but that it was not part of God's original plan that the creatures would be unhappy. That part of the reason why we're not happy is because of sin. Sometimes people are unhappy or we suffer as a natural consequence of our sinful choices. And sometimes God allows suffering or uses suffering as a call to attention, like you said. And God, it's God's megaphone to rouse this deaf world in order to get people's attention so that we will return to God. And then when it comes to the uh, conclusion there, uh, he says that the conclusion really commits the fallacy of uh, exhaustive hypotheses. That is, that it says that God has to be either lacking in goodness or power or both, but these are not really the only logical alternatives. God may be good, perfectly good, or all-powerful, but may have reasons for allowing human suffering. And then he outlines different ones of those. And these are the types of things that you often find in, in classic uh, theodicies with uh, the greater good or um, because of free, the, the greater benefit of free will and that sort of thing. Mm. And it really places the, the onus on the person making the objection, really, because exactly. they have to be able to show that God couldn't possibly have brought a greater good out of this bad situation. But I often find even just in my own simple life, let alone drawing from more extreme and dramatic examples, I've often found that things which I thought were really bad at the time, they actually turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. Yeah, sometimes we, uh, we're far too uh, nearsighted to see those things. Yeah, yeah. It's we. It's funny in in attempting to disprove God, we actually demand that we have godlike vision to be able to see all things that are possible and That's to right. declare them uh, in the antithesis of Genesis, not good. Right. Then the next part of your book particularly interested me because it relates to what I still think is Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce. Uh, you title the chapter "My Will Be Done: Hell According to C.S. Lewis." And hell is obviously a doctrine with which many people struggle. So how can Lewis help them? Yeah, well, I agree, uh, David. I, I think that The Great Divorce is probably also my favorite book by C.S. Lewis. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> Suck it, Andrew. <laughs> yes. And, um, and not only that, you know, I wrote my doctoral thesis on the doctrine of hell. So this chapter kind of combines two of my great interests, C.S. Lewis and the doctrine of hell. Now, his, his ideas on hell really have been revolutionary. And anytime you hear a pastor or a preacher say something like, hell is its own punishment or hell is separation from God, it comes at least indirectly from C.S. Lewis. Mm. And I think that we can see uh, his influence very clearly in people like N.T. Wright and in uh, the Bible Project's Tim Mackey and many, many, many others. Now, the main thrust of his idea about hell is that God doesn't send people to hell. People self-isolate themselves in hell. And God, uh, Lewis uh, really takes away the whole retributive dimension from hell and reframes it as the natural consequence of a person's choice to live without God. Mm. And I think that this is summarized very clearly in this quote from The Great Divorce, a well-known quote where he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. And without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. So those people who end up in hell have rejected not only the salvation and eternal life, 
But according to Lewis, they've also rejected all the good things that God wants to bless his creatures with. Pleasure, beauty, love, friendship, and so, so many, many more things. Now, I'm, I'm a bit critical of Lewis's uh, view of hell, um, and I won't take time to, to give my reasons here, but, I, but I, as I said, I, I give a number of, I think, six or seven reasons why I disagree with him on the doctrine of hell. Uh, if you want to know why, listeners will just have to get the book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, uh, I remember the first time I read The Great Divorce, and I'm, I think yeah, I've, I've listened to some of your other talks and interviews, and I think I've put myself in the traditionalist camp, but I will say that there's, we, can, we can pillage an awful lot of Lewis's ideas uh, to help at least frame our understanding in a, in a way that can make more sense to us. That's right. The final part of the body of your book relates to the Christian life, specifically what you call the battle between reason and emotions. So what is this battle? And why did you decide to end the book with this particular subject? Well, I mean, the chapter on hell was so dark and heavy that I just didn't think that it worked very well as an end to the book. Uh, one, of, one of my friends, an older gentleman, was, was reading the book, and he got to the chapter on hell, and he says, I tried to read your book, but I just couldn't get, get any farther than that. I couldn't get past that chapter. And I said, well, just, just skip that chapter and go to the last chapter, because it's much more positive. I, well, I would, I would say if you get through the chapter on hell, it's just really just been purgatory. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the last chapter um, is really just a, a look at some of Lewis's random thoughts on the Christian life, sanctification, prayer, calling, um, something that's just a, a bit more bright and hopeful than the chapter on hell. <laughs> now, uh, many people think of faith and reason as two opposite things, two non-overlapping magisteria, mm. that science and logic are things that you can know on the one hand, and that Religion and faith are things that you can only believe, on the other hand. But in reality, Lewis is correct, I think, in pointing out that the battle does not lie between reason on one hand and faith on the other hand, but, but between emotions on the one hand and reason on the other hand. That faith should be firmly anchored on the reason side of the equation, and that that's struggling against our emotions. Now, this ties in very closely with Lewis's thoughts on dealing with doubt. He says that we all have times when we go through circumstances in life where we may call into question the goodness of God. And this is something he did very clearly after the, the death of his wife, Joy, to, to cancer. We may call into question the goodness uh, of uh, God. We may call into question the genuous, genuineness of our own faith or our own commitment, many other things. But according to Lewis, the right response to this is to tell our emotions where to get off and to remind ourselves of the foundational truths that led us to Christ in the first place. And that's where apologetics plays an important role. And so even if we didn't make our initial faith commitment to Christ as a result of apologetic reasoning, for instance, if we came to Christ as a child or, or for some uh, completely existential reasons, apologetics still has an important role in strengthening the faith of the believer. So reminding ourselves of the basic arguments for the existence of God, the goodness of God, the resurrection and uniqueness of Christ, the trustworthiness, trustworthiness of the Bible, all of these things go a long way in helping us deal with the subjective feelings of doubt that sometimes plague us. And he says that everybody has doubt, even an atheist. <laughs> exactly. And he says that he did that when he himself was an atheist. Yep, that's right. <laughs> the, the example I, I give, just because it was a visceral experience for myself, when I, when I went skydiving, I had 
I knew the statistics. I knew it was safe. I knew that this company had an excellent record. But oh, when you're standing at that doorway and looking a long way down, my emotions had other thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. <laughs> okay, I have one last question. If you have read the New Testament in 13 languages, do you think you could beat either Joy or Lewis at Scrabble? Because they famously used to play Scrabble, and the deal was you can use any word in any language as long as you can find it in a book somewhere. Okay, well, any word in any language, then definitely I think that I could I could beat him. Wow. However, if, if, if we limit ourselves <laughs> to English, I cannot beat my wife. She always beats me every time at those sorts of things. So, yeah. Whenever I play Scrabble with my wife, I always want to use Latin words and she keeps telling me they're not allowed. Well, that's that's what I say. You know, I, I see all these things in, you know, Latin and French and Italian and, and Finnish and who knows what. And uh, yeah, they don't count most of the time. <laughs> Wonderful. Dr. Baker, thank you so much for coming on Pints with Jack. Uh, can you tell listeners where they can pick up a copy of your book as well as where they can find out more about you, preferably in English? Yeah, well, uh, the book uh, Beyond Narnia, The Theology of C.S. Lewis is readily available from Amazon and other online booksellers. As for social media, I'm not really much of a social media type. Uh, I'd rather put my face in a real book. Um, <laughs> I do, however, have a page on academia.edu. And a lot of the material there is in Swedish, but there are some uh, some older, uh, earlier articles that I've later uh, polished a bit and having found their way into the book, and some teaching notes and things like that that are available in English at the academia.edu page. Well, thanks again to Dr. Baker for coming on the show. And I'd also like to thank all of our listeners, uh, particularly those who support us on Patreon and particularly our top tier supporters. That's Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate and Rowdy. Please feel free to reach out to us on social media, Patreon, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we'll be reading some iTunes reviews on the season finale, which we will soon be recording. So please leave us a funny one. And join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Skål. Skål. <laughs>